2006, October 24th. Today is Lecture 23, The Worlds Within, Atoms and Matter. We'll begin in just a moment. Okay, so let's begin here on Lecture 23. I'll start the recording here for the podcast. Uh, podcasts have become fairly popular, I've noticed. Um, someone sent me an email noticing that we are number 23 out of the top 100 education podcast sites on iTunes. Uh, I got an email this morning from a fan in Canada who listens to us while commuting. So, uh, I don't know, I think that may be dangerous to listen to a lecture while you're trying to drive, but uh, I think certainly the Interstate Commerce Commission or whatever the equivalent of Canada might have a few things to say about that. But welcome to any of our outside OSU listeners. On a cold morning like this where people are probably getting colds, there are probably a few more listeners than there are students today. All right, yesterday... We talked about the nature of light. We talked about how light is, is really the messenger. It's the cosmic messenger. We can, look at, we can use light to bridge what would otherwise be unbridgeable cosmic distances between us and anything in space. We can learn how much energy is coming out of an object by looking at its, its luminosity. We measure its luminosity by comparing its apparent brightness in the distance through the inverse square law. We can also get an idea of whether an object is moving towards or away from us and how fast by using the Doppler effect gave a couple of examples, a little bit rushed towards the end of class, of like police radar, traffic guns, and Doppler radar, which is a practical application of the Doppler effect in light. But an actual application in space, as we'll see, is I can measure the speeds of objects. To get much more information out of light, I have to know how light and matter interact together, which means I really have to know something about the properties of matter. And so today, today's lecture is entitled The Worlds Within Atoms, we're going to review the basic properties of matter that are of concern to us in this class. So the key ideas today are that atoms are composed of a nucleus containing protons and neutrons surrounded by orbiting electrons. And we'll say a little bit about the details of that here in just a moment. We'll talk about the difference between chemical elements and isotopes, how these various nuclei combine together to make chemically distinct entities we call the elements, and then how you can add or subtract neutrons from that chemically distinct element to make something called an isotope that has the same chemical properties but a different nuclear weight. This leads fairly naturally into a discussion of radioactivity, which is going to be very useful to us at various times in this class, is the fact that sometimes atoms change into other atoms through the nature of radioactivity, the agency of radioactivity. And we'll talk a bit about radioactivity and half-life. And finally, I want to end by discussing the four fundamental forces of nature. Now, in this class, really what we're going to be mostly concerned with is gravitation, because that's the force that rules on the, on the scales of planets and people and things like that, and the electromagnetic force. But it's also a good time to introduce you to the strong and weak nuclear forces, which really are going to come more into play in Astro 162, but are behind why nuclei atoms have the structure they do and why radioactivity works. And so it just nicely sort of closes the loop and gives you a complete picture. So today we're going to be talking about the nature of matter. If we look at ordinary matter, and I'm going to be very specific by ordinary matter, meaning the things that are around us. If we look around us, we see people, we see stuff, we see stars, planets. Those are made of what we call ordinary matter. There are more exotic forms of matter. They primarily exist in atomic particle colliders, and they may exist in the centers of crazy places like deep in the interior of neutron stars in the environments of black holes or in the earliest stages of the Big Bang. We're not going to concern ourselves with that here, but we're going to look at the primary form that we experience, which is atomic matter. That's really the lowest level of division that we ever really experience for the most part in the everyday world. 
There's a lot of good reasons for that, but telling that story, well, that's most of the topic of 162, it turns out. The range of ordinary matter is actually quite surprising. It runs all the way from fundamental particles, quarks and leptons, to give you their names. From fundamental particles, we can build up subatomic particles, protons and neutrons that are actually composed of quarks, and electrons. Electrons are actually one of three types of leptons, as they're so-called leptons or lightweight particles. So from subatomic particles, as their name suggests, smaller than an atom, we can build up to single atoms. For example, hydrogen, helium, carbon, gold, all of the single atomic forms of matter. This is really kind of, I've drew a line kind of right here between single atoms and subatomic particles. This is where the more or less familiar world begins. We do have free subatomic particles occasion, but they're minorities in this particular game. From single atoms, I can then combine those atoms through the agency of the electromagnetic force to build simple molecules. Things molecules you experience every day are like O2, molecular oxygen, H2O, water, liquid water or water vapor, uh, N2, atomic nit molecular nitrogen, and things like that. Whenever I take atoms and bind them together with electromagnetic forces, I form molecules. I can take these simple molecules and I can build them up into very lar much larger structures until I get into the realm of so-called macromolecules. These are things like DNA, complex polymers that make up plastics and things like that. And finally, I can use these particular molecules to start building up to the level of tissues, structures, crystalline matrices, and things like that until I get to the realm of stuff, macroscopic objects, something I can pick up in my hand, like a rock, or even to the scale of people and the scale of planets, things like that. So now we're talking about ordinary matter still bound together by a combination of the electromagnetic force. But when I get up to the realm of planets, I start getting into the realm where gravity starts becoming one of the agencies that helps bind the matter together. So it's a tremendous range from the very smallest things in the universe to literally all the way up to the largest things in the universe. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Now I'm going to concentrate primarily on atoms because that's really the fundamental unit that we're most concerned with in astronomy. If I take an, an atom apart, what I find is it falls into two basic pieces of its structure. The first of these is the nucleus. The nucleus consists of heavy subatomic particles. These heavy particles often have another name you'll encounter. They're called baryons, which is just a fancy Greek way of saying a heavy thing. In this case, in particular, in normal matter, the two subatomic particles that make up all of atomic matter are the proton, which is a positively charged heavy particle, and a neutron, which is an uncharged or ne electrically neutral subatomic particle. It has roughly the same mass as a proton. It actually turns out to be a little bit less, more massive. Think about it, Rick. More massive. It's slightly more massive than the proton. I always get this stuff backwards. So if I stripped away the first two most simple elements, hydrogen on the top and helium on the bottom, what I would find in the nucleus is hydrogen, simplest hydrogen, just a single proton. Whereas simple helium, in this case helium-4, we'll say what that means here in just a second, consists of two protons and two neutrons. In my little cartoon, I've made the protons red, kind of like the, the red positively charged terminal of a battery. The neutrons are green, they got a little zero in there to remind you they have no electric charge. So that forms the nucleus, the very center, most of the mass. Around this nucleus, we place clouds of orbiting electrons. The electrons are tiny particles. They're actually called leptons, lepton for light. Um, light meaning lightweight, not light as in photons. They're negatively charged 
particles. In fact, they have a negative charge whose magnitude is exactly the same as the positive charge on a proton, so that plus and minus exactly cancel. So they end up being a pl positive plus a negative makes a perfectly neutral thing. But they're tiny. Their name lepton or lightweight is justified because they're 1,836th of the mass of a proton. So they're a tiny, tiny contributor to the mass of the atom. So if I take, for example, this helium-4 nucleus down here, I've got two protons and two neutrons, so I've got a whole bunch of weight there, but I've only got, buzzing around it here in my little cartoon, two electrons. Those two electrons combined, each individually, are only one, about one two thousandth the mass of one of the four nuclear particles. So adding the electrons, in this case two electrons, one for each proton, adds virtually nothing to the mass of the atom. Most of the mass of the atom really is the mass of its nucleus. And the electrons are kind of just fluff I put on the outside, although important fluff because it's the electrons that mediate the chemical properties, among other, uh, other things. Now, I've drawn this sort of traditional, what we used to call, and this kind of dates me, a Westinghouse atom. The old Westinghouse Corporation used to have as its co corporate logo the traditional atom with the sort of the crossing orbits inside of it. Atoms really don't look like this. These are merely cartoons. Atoms have some surprising properties. They are, in fact, mostly empty space. If I look at the scale of the atomic nucleus and compare that to the scale of the cloud of electrons that orbits around them, I find the difference in size scales is about a factor of 100,000. But since we're talking about volumes, the difference of volume occupied by the nucleus compared to the cloud of, of electrons that defines, if you will, the fuzzy boundary of an atom, it's 100,000 cubed, because we're talking about cubic volume, or spherical volume, really. That means that the volume occupied by the nucleus with the little cloud of fuzzy electrons is one part in 10 to the 15 of the actual volume. Actually has any matter in it. This is actually almost a mind-bogglingly empty phenomenon. But it's not empty. It's often the, the usual words you get in textbooks and sometimes that matter is mostly empty space. And it is, in fact, mostly empty space, but that space really isn't empty of, it's empty of matter, but it's not empty of energy. Because threading that volume are electric, electromagnetic fields. It's the electromagnetic fields that hold the electrons onto the, onto the nucleus. And they actually thread the space between them. They fill it with a sort of energy. You can think of it as lines of field force if you want to. There's lots of cartoony ways of looking at it. But in fact, the space does have something in it. It has energy in it. And this is why, even though this stage is mostly empty in terms of its matter, the, distance, the average volume filled by the nucleus is one part in 10 to the 15. A number so big, I don't even bother stating it in words. I just have to immediately jump to scientific notation. And yet, despite that, in fact, my body is containing matter, which also is one part in 10 to the 15, and yet they don't pass through each other. How can something so empty be stable, be solid? How, can, how come I don't just fall through the floor and into the earth? And the answer is those electromagnetic fields that thread through the empty, spa the empty space between the atomic nuclei and the electrons. Those electromagnetic fields literally prevent interpenetration of the atoms in my shoes with the atoms in the stage. That's how strong the electromagnetic force is. It simply overcomes the gravity trying to pull me down to the center of the Earth and stops the matter cold. It's a very strange way of looking at matter. Matter is kind of a form of frozen energy in a way. 
And part of that energy are the fields that hold it together. So when we talk about matter, I can't, don't, I can't just stop by talking about constituents, protons, neutrons, and electrons. I must also include the forces that hold those atoms and stuff together because they are part and parcel of atomic structure. Now, those were cartoon atoms. This is also a cartoon, but it's a much more detailed computer simulation of an electron's cloud surrounding a hydrogen atom. In this case, it's an excited hydrogen atom. And you can see that we don't actually see the electron. It's zipping around so fast, it makes a blur. And so we can represent the position of the electron as kind of this fuzzy cloud. And you can see the fuzzy cloud's got a little structure to it. That structure is fundamentally unimportant to us in this class, but just to remind you that the world of, the at of atomic matter is very, very complex, but it's calculable despite that complexity. And that calculation is done through the agency of something called quantum mechanics, which is our mathematical and physical description of what the world is like in the realm of the very small. Well, let's sort of leave that ghostly detail aside and move on with properties of matter that matter to us. The first of these is to discuss the differences, distinctions among different types of atoms by defining them in terms of chemical elements. Now, the word element is very old. It basically means an elementary subdivision of matter that sort of stops at some level. If you go back to Aristotle, he thought of the elements as four elements, earth, air, wind, and fire. Earth, air, fire, I'm sorry, earth, air, fire, and water. Boy, I blew that one good. From that primitive division of the types of matter, people began to find that there were actual real distinctions between different types of matter, how they interacted with each other, how they responded chemically. Through the 18th and 19th centuries, and finally into the 20th century, when we actually understood what the devil was going on inside the atom, people began to realize that the different chemical elements, the things that were distinct chemically by how they interacted in a you know, chemist test tube or something, um, actually is related to the interior structure of the atom into the properties of the nucleus and the properties of the clouds of electrons surrounding it. It turns out that the actual distinction between different chemical elements, different types of atoms, is made primarily by the number of protons inside of its nucleus. This defines something we call the atomic number. Atomic number is nothing less than counting the number of protons in the nucleus. Each type of chemical element has a unique atomic number. Let's start with the simplest, hydrogen. Hydrogen is the simplest atom in, in the universe. It has one proton. Whenever you see a nucleus with one proton in it, however many neutrons it may have is actually irrelevant to this, just one proton, one proton says, I'm hydrogen. The next is helium, which has two protons in the nucleus. So whenever you see only two protons in the nucleus, that says chemically, I'm helium. Three protons is lithium, and so on and so forth. For naturally occurring chemical elements, something you could dig up out of the ground in a stable form, the atomic numbers run from 1, hydrogen, to 92, uranium. So everything, uranium, gold, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, the familiar and the unfamiliar of the chemical element table. If you go and take a chemistry class or go to a chemistry classroom, you get a nice periodic table of the elements on the, on the wall. The first 92 proton counts are the naturally occurring elements. Now, in a stable, neutral atom form of any of these elements, the number of electrons is exactly balances the number of protons. Each electron carries a negative charge that is equal and opposite to the charge on a proton. So to make a neutral hydrogen, I simply need to add one electron for its one proton. 
To make neutral lithium, I have to have three electrons for the three protons. To make neutral uranium, I have to add 92 electrons for the 92 protons. Not surprisingly, when you get 92 electrons buzzing around, things get chemically very complicated very fast. Now, what makes the atoms distinct is the number of protons and their accompanying number of electrons is what determines the chemical properties of the atom. And it makes each of these chemically distinct. So oxygen is chemically distinct from carbon. Carbon has six protons plus six electrons orbiting it. Oxygen has eight protons with eight electrons orbiting. I just happen to know those off the top of my head. Those are going to have very chemically distinct chemical signatures and very distinct chemical behaviors. And that's what, how we first began to distinguish oxygen from carbon from nitrogen, is their atomic structure dictates their chemical interactions. So what are the most important elements in the universe? If I now not just simply take the provincial view of looking around me and walk outside, scoop up some earth and see, take it apart and see what chemical elements I have, but if I view the universe as a whole, what are the most abundant elements in the universe? So sort of in a slight Letterman nod here, the top 10 are sulfur, number 10, magnesium is number 9, iron is number 8, silicon is number 7, nitrogen is number 6, Neon is number five, carbon is number four, oxygen is number three, helium is number two, and you guessed it, as we're going from complex to simple, number one with a bullet is hydrogen. You don't really need to memorize this list. In fact, in some ways, you kind of don't need to, because all the materials up here are pretty, pretty familiar. Hydrogen we mostly experience in its molecular form mixed with oxygen to make water. Helium. Well, outside of helium balloons and well gas, is a little unusual here on the Earth. In fact, helium was first discovered in the sun, hence its name helios, helium, from the word helios. Oxygen, of course, we breathe. Carbon, well, we're carbon-based life forms. Neon, okay, you've got to go see a beer sign, but neon is, is around on the Earth. It's, it's, a, it's like helium, it isn't chemically reactive. Nitrogen, most of the air you're breathing right now is nitrogen, not oxygen. More it's like 70% of the atmosphere is nitrogen in molecular form. Silicon. Rock. Most rocks are silicate-bearing rocks, and we see a few computers and cell phones around. You've got silicon inside the chips inside that thing. Iron. Iron in your blood, iron in uh, any steel and metal around you. Again, a common element. Magnesium. It's just another common element. It actually makes up elements of metals. And sulfur, which you may not be as familiar with, but in fact is a component of smog. It comes out of volcanoes and other things like that. These are the top ten most abundant elements it shouldn't surprise you that these are most of the elements we're made of, right? Organic life is composed primarily of organic <coughs> molecules, which are composed of hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, and nitrogen. So not surprisingly, we're composed of the primary things. The Earth is made primarily of silicates and iron. So these are the most common elements. Everything else is much less common. Now, the why of this is a story that, I, that would need about four weeks to tell, and in fact, is makes up the central portion of Astronomy 162. So if you want to hear the story of why the elements are this way, in this order, you've got to go on and take 162. How many elements are there? Well, I mentioned 92 naturally occurring elements. As of last week, this number keeps changing, there are 118 elements known all the way from hydrogen with one proton to this new thing, which doesn't really have a pronounceable name, doesn't actually have a name yet at all, with 118 protons in its nucleus. If you look at the division of these things by their various types, 87 of the 118 elements are metals. 
That's 11 appear as gases in terrestrial form. Hydrogen, helium, neon, xenon, things like that are all gases. Oxygen are gases in, the, in, the, in this room. Two of them occur at li as liquids at standard temperature and pressure. Mercury, which you're probably familiar with. Bromine, which you are probably less familiar with. Those are the two only two liquids on terrestrial conditions. 26 occur, but when they occur, they're naturally radioactive. We'll define what we mean by radioactive here specifically in just a moment. And 25, to date, are only made in particle accelerators. For example, element 118 up there was actually created in a particle accelerator by smashing together a nucleus of cesium and a nucleus of californium together in the particle accelerator. And for one ten thousandth or less of a second, it formed a nucleus with 118 protons and some giganto number of neutrons, but it was unstable and flew apart about a tenth of, ten thousandth of a second later. Now, these are the 118 basic elements. Each of the elements are distinguished by the number of protons. One for hydrogen, two for helium, and so on up the table. But I can have even more forms of matter which are chemically identical, but were distinguished not by the number of protons, but by the number of neutrons in their nucleus. And I call those uh, objects isotopes. What is an isotope? Well, a given element, hydrogen, helium, everything, can have any number of isotopes. They have the same number of protons, right? The number of protons tells you I'm hydrogen, I'm gold, I'm whatever. The number of neutrons sets the total weight, the total atomic mass of the nucleus. And I can have different numbers of neutrons. Let's look at some examples. Let's take carbon as an example of this. Carbon has three primary isotopic forms. The version of carbon that we all know and love of charcoal and the atoms in our body is carbon-12. Okay, six protons says I'm carbon. Carbon-12 is six protons plus six neutrons. That's the, most, that's the dominant form of carbon. Carbon-13 is the second most common form. It has six protons, because six protons says I'm carbon, but it has seven neutrons. Six plus seven is 13. Carbon-14 has six protons and eight neutrons. Six plus eight is 14. This gives us our atomic notation. Main element symbol, C for carbon here. We're only going to use a handful of these, so you don't have to memorize all 92. I had to do that in chemistry in high school. That was foul. I never will impose that on anybody. Um, C here is carbon. Carbon always means six protons. And then this little superscript number that I put at the upper right-hand corner is the count of the protons plus neutrons. And it tells you which isotopic form we're dealing with. So the way we read this, Kind of a, there's kind of two different schools of it. You can say 12 carbon or carbon 12. I usually say carbon 12. So carbon says six protons. Carbon 12 means, oh, that means it's got six neutrons. Carbon 13 is six protons plus seven neutrons because 13 minus six is seven and so forth. So you can play the game here. Carbon 14. So carbon 12, carbon 13, carbon 14. So we'll often be very specific. If I don't care about the isotope for what I'm talking about, I'll just drop the the isotopic form. And you can pretty much assume that if you ever see just C or O or HE, when I'm talking about carbon or oxygen or helium, I'm talking about the primary isotopic form. If, on the other hand, I'm trying to make a point in which the isotopic forms matter, then I will append the number. We're always very schizoid about our notation in astronomy. We always put it up and take it down like that. What's important about this is that all of these forms of carbon are chemically identical to each other. 
So carbon-12 forms CO2, carbon dioxide, the same as there's 13 O2, C13O2, and C14O2. You can actually form carbon dioxide from carbon-13 and carbon-14. It's chemically identical. The only difference is carbon-13 and carbon-14 are just one neutron heavier. So, for example, if you have a, a normal form of an element and the next up isotope has more neutrons, you sometimes refer to that as the heavy form of the thing. So, for example, heavy hydrogen is deuterium. It's an isotopic form of hydrogen. So let's look at how these things go together. Okay, here we're going to start with our building blocks, our cartoon building blocks, are our protons and neutrons. And now just for clarity, I'm dropping that plus and that zero sign just because they kind of make a, a mess of what was going to happen next. Hydrogen is one proton. Everything with one proton is hydrogen. So the most simple form of hydrogen is hydrogen one, or just plain hydrogen. If I add a neutron to that proton, I now get hydrogen two, which has a special name. It's called a deuterium. Do as in two. And I can make, add another neutron. So I have two neutrons plus one proton makes hydrogen three, which has the special name of tritium. Tritium tri for three. After people got into this, they kind of got tired of making up new names for each isotope. So after hydrogen, we don't make up names for isotopes anymore. So notice what the, what's going on here. Each one of these has one proton, and I've simply added neutrons. Now, is there a quadridium? <laughs> is there a hydrogen four? And the answer is no. There isn't a hydrogen four. I cannot put three neutrons on top of one proton and have it form a stable element. So we get our first clue here that I can't just simply infinitely add neutrons. Something's going on here that limits the number of isotopic forms. In the universe, hydrogen is stable, deuterium is stable, but tritium turns out to be unstable. But it lasts long enough to actually exist in, you know, I can pick it up in a bottle. It's just it's radioactive. Helium has two isotopic forms. Helium says, I've got two protons. There's light helium, helium-3, which has two protons plus one neutron. And I can have helium-4, the most common isotopic form, two protons plus two neutrons. We've already met this. But notice there is no helium-2. There is no helium with only two protons together. And the reason is those protons have positive charge. And positive charge is strongly repulsive. So repellent is the two positive charges pushed together that you cannot hold them and bind them together into a nucleus. The electric charge will literally rip the two protons apart before they'll ever bind together into a helium-2 nucleus. So now we've got a second clue to something about the nature of matter. Not only can I not arbitrarily add numbers of neutrons, neither can I arbitrarily subtract neutrons. Neutrons are playing an interesting little role in here. And then, of course, jumping up to lithium, there are two isotopic forms, lithium-6 with three protons. Three protons says, I'm lithium. Lithium-6 tells you it must be three plus three is six, three neutrons here. And also lithium-7, which has three protons plus four neutrons, three plus four is seven. But there is not a lithium-8, there is not a lithium-9. So what's going on here? We have all these things are different isotopic forms. All three forms here of hydrogen, deuterium, and tritium will behave the same chemically. I can make heavy water as deuterium O2, just like I can make water as H, I'm sorry, H2O. I can make D2O, deuterium oxide. I could even, in principle, make tritium water, heavy, very heavy water. I can have two different forms of helium, light helium and regular helium. 
almost like light and classic, something like that, you know, sugar-free, I don't know why we call it light, it's because it's lighter weight. And then I can form various compounds of lithium using lithium-6 and lithium-7 and so forth. They will behave chemically identically in terms of how fast the reactions go and things like that. There are slight differences because, yeah, the element's a little heavier. For example, D2O, heavy water, is slightly more thick than uh, regular water, so you can actually tell a little bit that you're dealing with heavy water versus regular water. But, you know, for the most part, chemically, they're virtually identical. You really would have a hard time telling without a lot of information. Now, what's going on here? Why is it that I can only have hydrogen 1, hydrogen 2, and hydrogen 3, but I can't have hydrogen 4? And why is it I can't have helium 2, but I can have helium 3 and helium 4? Why isn't there a stable nucleus with two protons? Well, I just explained that. The answer turns out to be the number of neutrons. The neutron turns out to be the key to understanding this. Neutrons play the role of stabilizing atomic nuclei. What they do is they kind of mitigate that electric repulsion of force because when you put atomic protons and neutrons together inside the nucleus, a new force comes into play called the strong nuclear force, which we'll meet in just a moment. But if that strong neutron Nuclear force <coughs> can only go so far. If I have too many or too few neutrons inside of an atomic nucleus, it will become unstable against radioactive decay. Basically, it will not be able to keep its current form, and it will bust apart or it will transform itself in some way that changes the number of protons in the pieces that are left over. And if you change your number of protons, you've changed your identity. And that's called radioactive decay. Matter literally transforms itself into another more stable form. So matter, if you will, follows a little rule of quantum mechanics that matter wants to be in its most stable form. So if you have unstable matter, it will seek a stable form through the laws of quantum mechanics. Let me give you some examples of what I mean by stability and radioactive decay. Take tritium, for example. Hydrogen 3 consists of a proton plus two neutrons. It turns out there's one too many neutrons inside this thing to be stable. And so it's going to break apart by taking one of those neutrons and turning itself into a proton, which is quite a trick, and spitting out an electron plus a little particle called a neutrino. These two are leptons. So I'm left with two protons and a neutron. Tritium decays into light helium, into helium-3. I mentioned that carbon-14 was an unstable isotope of, of carbon. Carbon says I've got six protons. Carbon-14 says I have to have 14 minus 6 equals 8 neutrons. That's one neutron too many. And eventually it decays by taking one of those extra neutrons, turning it into a proton plus an electron plus a neutrino. And now I have a nucleus with seven protons and seven neutrons. Seven protons is no longer carbon. Seven protons is nitrogen. So carbon-14 decays into nitrogen-14, spitting out an electron and a neutrino to keep the balance of charge and the balance of matter going. In fact, carbon-14 radioactivity is the basis of radioactive carbon dating that will be useful to us at various times in this class. Furthermore, that fact that that neutron is doing this little presto change trick tells you something about neutrons. Free neutrons, neutrons outside of an atomic nucleus, are themselves unstable. They're self-unstable. And a neutron, if left to itself, so if I had a bag full of neutrons here in the room, if I waited around long enough, one of those neutrons is going to turn into a proton plus, guess what, an electron and a neutrino. Hmm, exactly the products of 
proton to neutron, electron, neutrino there. Proton has a positive charge, electron has a negative charge. Add them together, they cancel. Neutral, and therefore a neutron. This neutrino basically acts to preserve the angular momentum, the spin of the, of the system. It's a little tiny particle, it's nearly massless. It interacts only through something called the weak nuclear force. And now I've introduced the fourth of the nuclear, of the, of this, of the atomic forces, or the fundamental forces of nature. So you never see free neutrons in the wild, certainly not for very long. But how long? Right? I said if I waited long enough, carbon-14 will turn into nitrogen-14 and spit out an electron and neutrino. If I wait around long enough, a free neutron will suddenly turn into a proton and spit out electrons and neutrinos. How long do I have to wait? Well, it turns out that this process of radioactive decay is a random process. It doesn't occur deterministically. It occurs as a statistical, it's a statistical process. And I refer, need a way to quantify this otherwise statistical process, and I do that via an activity indicator called the half-life. The half-life is just simply defined as the time it takes for half of the unstable atoms of a particular type to decay, to radioactively turn into something else whether it's by that neutron breakup trick that I just showed, there's something called beta decay, by the way, or some other radioactive process that sort of goes from an unstable form to a stable form. Now, the more radioactive, the more intensely radioactive a source, the shorter the half-life. So if you have a sample of something like uranium, you think, ooh, that's really badly radioactive. You're right, it is radioactively unstable, although the half-life is measured in billions of years. Whereas you don't want to be playing around with something that's got a half-life of a ten-thousandth of a second, that's a wickedly radioactive thing. Now, let's go back to our examples of radioactivity. Tritium decaying into light helium plus an electron and neutrino has a half-life of about twelve and a quarter years. That means if I had a bottle full of tritium, and I can do that, in fact, many years ago, tritium was used as a, it was used inside watches, believe it or not, to make the dials glow. Basically, the electron that's bounced off by the tritium when it decays would hit a phosphor and glow kind of gold. I actually had one of those. It's easily encapsulated. It doesn't, you know, I don't have a funny burn spot on my arm from that. But the watch will fade half its brightness in about 12 and a quarter years because half of the tritium will be gone after 12 and a quarter years from the little sealed capsule. Carbon-14 does its change into nitrogen-14 with a half-life of 5,730 years. This is why carbon-14 dating is so useful for finding out the ages of old things. All organic, all organic life and everything else takes up carbon quite naturally. You're taking up carbon from your environment all the time. You're expiring carbon through carbon dioxide. Turns out that some of the carbon you take up is carbon-14, which is formed by cosmic rays in the atmosphere. It gets locked in your bones, and when you die and it goes into the ground, after 5,730 years in the ground, half of the carbon-14 in your bones will have turned into nitrogen. So there will be less carbon-14 compared to everything else in your bones. A archaeologist in the distant future picking up one of your bones can look at the fraction of carbon-14 in there, know how much went in, know how much is there, and estimate how long you've been in the ground. That's what carbon-14 dating is. Neutrons have a half-life of 12 minutes. They're really unstable. So if I had a bag full of neutrons here, in 12 minutes, half the neutrons would be gone. So, half-life is the way of measuring the radioactivity from really active neutrons, sort of active tritium, 
and kind of a slow activity. And literally, for some elements, it gets up into tens of billions of years. This is going to be really useful to us as a geologic time clock later on in the class. So that's why I'm spending so much time on radioactivity. Now, it's kind of hard to think about statistical activity of, of subatomic particles doing their little presto changeo trick. So let's take a, a sort of down-to-earth analogy, popcorn. I know it's cruel to mention food in the morning, but what the heck. Um, everyone here has probably had popcorn at some point, put the bag in the microwave. Imagine we start out with a really wimpy bag of popcorn that has 16 unpopped kernels and no popped kernels, and I start the clock. Punch the button on the microwave, and then I wait to ask myself, how long will it take until eight kernels have popped and eight kernels are unpopped? And let's say that number is 35 seconds. That's really wimpy popcorn, but that might be the right number. 35 seconds would be the half-life of popcorn. What's going to happen in the next 35 seconds? Well, in the next 35 seconds, I have eight unpopped kernels. Half-life of 35 seconds means after the next 35 seconds, there will be four unpopped kernels and four popped kernels, plus the eight that I already had. So two half-lives takes out two times two, and I'm left with a quarter. Wait another 35 seconds. I've got four popcorn kernels left. After 35 seconds, two of them will have popped. And I will end up with, on average, two unpopped kernels, and all the rest are popped. So radioactive decay is an exponential process. It works on start your time clock. It's the amount of time until half is gone. So I don't pop all my popcorn in 70 seconds. I pop my popcorn until, well, I get tired of waiting for the last statistical half-life. Think about the way the microwave popcorn works. Starts out slow, you get a lot, and then it kind of tails off until finally you hear one or two, I better take it out of the microwave before it bursts into flames. Same thing in atoms. Atomic samples will start out with all of the unstable atoms. After one half-life, there will be half. After Two half-lifes, there will be half of a half or one quarter left. After three half-lifes, there will be half of a half of a half is one eighth. After four half-lifes, half of a half of a half of a half, which is one sixteenth, and so on exponentially. So half-life is an exponential process. It measures how much time it takes in any given sample for half of it to decay into whatever the next form is. Popcorn's a good analogy if that helps. It works the same for atomic nuclei. And the reason why it's stochastic is, which of those four eight kernels is going to pop in the next 35 seconds? Can you tell me in advance which ones are going to pop? No. Same is true of atoms. I can't say, ah, yeah, that one looks like it's ready to go. You don't know. It just spontaneously goes. I mean, you can make a drinking game, I suppose, out of betting on the next popcorn kernel to pop. But um, not much else. It wouldn't be a very useful thing. I would just play the statistics. So the half-life of that is 35 seconds. Now, there are four fundamental forces of nature. We've already met two of them, the gravitational force, and I've alluded to the electromagnetic force. It holds matter together. There's two other forces at play, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. They're the ones that hold atomic nuclei together. So let's just deal with them one after another. Gravitational force we've already met. This is Newton's work. Gravity is what binds matter to other matter over very long distances. It's an example of what we call a long-range attractive force. Matter, gravity always attracts other matter. It's the weakest force of nature. It may not feel like it's the weakest force of nature when you're tripping down the stairs, but it is, in fact, extremely weak. 
It also obeys the inverse square law of distance. The force is this g m1 m2 over distance squared that we've seen before. So gravity is a long-range attractive force that binds matter to other matter over long distances. The electromagnetic force acts between charged particles. Like charges, protons and protons, or electrons and electrons, repel each other. Opposite particles, protons and electrons, attract each other. So it can be both repulsive as well as an attractive force. And it, too, is a long-range inverse square law force. What electromagnetic force does is it binds electrons and protons together to form atoms, the protons in the nucleus, the electrons surrounding. It can also act to bind atoms together into other atoms to form molecules, bind molecules to molecules to form tissues and materials. So electromagnetic force works at the atomic to sort of middle scale. It binds people to, together. It binds the earth and rocks and things like that together. It's also very strong. It's 10 to the 39 times stronger than gravity. It's a huge force by comparison to gravity. The strong and weak nuclear forces are short-range forces. They work on the scale of atomic nuclei deep inside the atom. The strong force is what binds quarks inside protons and neutrons. That's the new bit that got dropped. And binds protons and neutrons together into the nuclei. It's the thing that's the strongest force of nature. It's able to overcome electrical repulsion of the protons and bind them together into the nucleus if there's a neutron there to mediate it. The weak force is responsible for radioactivity. It's what's behind the neutron busting into an electron and is the second weakest force of nature. All of these together give us all the interactions that make up matter. Sorry about going over time. We'll see you all tomorrow.